Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. series is going to be on the books of First and Second Kings and the life of Elijah and Elisha. So turn with me, if you can, to uh, uh, Malchim Aleph, also known as First Kings, uh, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, so First Kings, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, uh, Elijah, uh, in Hebrew, Eliyahu, Elijah the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord... The God of Israel lives, whom I serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, uh, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. And I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, uh, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called out, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do all as you said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have, and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Uh, so there was food every day, for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of oil was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord, spoken by Elisha. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house, and gave him to his mother, and 
and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elisha, Now I know that you're a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's do some, some background here, quickly, uh, and then I'll look at several themes. We'll put this on the overhead. We're going to look at the themes of number one. In a pluralistic age like we live in, like, like, they, like Elijah lived in, and like we live in, how can we know the true God? Number two, the power of being a giver, like this woman. And three, once we know him, how do we serve this true God? So here's the background. At the death of King Solomon... Uh, the people of God split into two rival kingdoms. The, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel and the two tribes of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. So we've got the, the nation irrevocably split now in two. And all the kings uh, of the northern kingdom, all 20 of them, uh, are evil. Every one of uh, the kings in the history of the northern kingdom were evil. And each one was more evil than the next. And then Ahab, son of Omri, becomes king. Let me read this in 1 Kings 16, uh, the prior chapter, uh, 20, verse 29. In the 38th year of Azal, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to, to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. So, uh, now, now just to be read, Ahab marries this pagan woman, uh, Jezebel, uh, the daughter of the king of Sidon. Uh, and we also read in, in, in Jewish history in Josephus that the king of Sodom was also the, the high priest of Baal, and, and Jezebel, his daughter, was the high priestess of Baal. Uh, so Ahab makes his unholy alliance with the Sidonians, whose main god was Baal, or Baal, who was the god of weather and rain and storms and, and thunder and lightning. Uh, uh, and, and Ahab, uh, he, he was for religious pluralism. He was for adding the pagan gods to the one true god of Israel. But once you let compromise with sin in the door, it's not content to be pluralistic. It's not content to coexist with you. It will seek to destroy you and to take over, like we see today in many ways. For example, we see it very obviously today in the so-called LBGTQ movement. Uh, you know, the goal isn't coexistence. Their goal is complete domination and to destroy the principles and standards of God. And that's just what Jezebel did. Jezebel seeks to establish Baal worship as the dominant religion of the northern kingdom of Israel. And she wants to destroy the worship of the God of Israel and replace him with, with Baal. Uh, and we're told in 1 Kings 18, we're going to look at this, of course, more, more next week, that Jezebel then went about systematically killing all the prophets of God. So here we have a real picture of spiritual warfare. Pagan gods, the Baals and the Asherah, uh, which are the gods of the grove, uh, versus the one true God of Israel. Uh, uh, and Jezebel, Jezebel is, is possessed with this murderous spirit against the prophets, uh, the man of God, the man of God. She's manipulative, uh, controlling, domineering, uh, and her weak and compliant husband Ahab 
they become prototypes of these ungodly spirits that are still alive and well today throughout the world, and especially in America. Because we too are in the midst of a great spiritual war in our country. So this story we're going to look at over the next several months of Elijah is extremely relevant to us today. Because we are dealing with the Jezebel spirit in America. Of extreme feminism that promotes limitless abortion and infanticide, uh, and gay and lesbian lifestyles, and transgenderism that, treat, that tries to make women into men and men into women. And we need to pray that the Lord will raise up a godly army of prayer warriors in America who stand up against this evil spirit that's attacking biblical values and trying to remake America into a pagan nation. More on this in the future weeks. But now in this context of ancient Israel, of the sudden out of nowhere enters this prophet, Elijah. He shows up out of nowhere and confronts King Ahab. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, If the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, that we neither do nor reign in the next few years, except at my word. Elijah pronounces God's judgment, saying a drought is coming, that's the result of the Lord's judgment on Ahab and the corruption of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the choice of a drought, by the way, is quite significant. Because Baal was regarded primarily as the weather god. The god who brought rain and storm and thereby life and fertility. But the Lord is saying with this drought, we're going to see who the real god is. And so with great courage, Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel. And and he throws down the gauntlet against Baal, uh, the storm god, saying there'll be no rain on the land. Not even dew. Instead, there'll be drought and famine and starvation. The God of Israel is saying, now we'll see who's the real Lord of the heavens. And so Ahab and Jezebel, they go in their search trying to, to find Elijah and kill him. So Elijah has to go into hiding. Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here. Go east, uh, hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan River. You'll drink from the brook, and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now we're going to learn at least three things in this passage about the true God. And we'll put this on the overhead. We're going to learn uh, that the true God is, number one, an outsider's God. Number two, he's the living God. And number three, he's the stretched out God. So first, he's the outsider's God. God comes to Elijah and says, I'm going to save your life. But who does he use to save Elijah? Let's drop down to verse 8. Verse 10, 17, 8. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now Elijah, he must have been utterly shocked uh, at this word. You know, over in Luke chapter 4, Yeshua preaches his first public sermon, and he refers to this passage. He gets in a lot of trouble because at the end of the sermon, and referring to this passage, this is what he says. Look at Luke 4, verse 25. Yeshua says, I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And when Yeshua said that, 
when he brought that, that sore subject up, when he brought up the story of God going to the Gentiles, in front of all these religious Israelites, that's when they try to kill him. So let's look at Luke 4, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They tried to kill Yeshua because this story is something that the religious people can't understand. This story, it's in their craw. Uh, This story confounds them and upsets them. It makes no sense to them. And for Yeshua to even mention it, it made them mad enough to try to kill him. Well, what was so shocking? Well, first of all, God says to Elijah, I'm going to save you, but I'm going to do, uh, first, but I'm going to send you out of Israel for your salvation. So the Lord sends him to Zarephath in Sidon. Now, do you remember who else is from Sidon? Jezebel. How ironic. God is having a laugh at Baal by sending Elijah into the heart of Baal worship. And Baal can't even find him there for three and a half years. Elijah's right in the heart of Satan's throne, and Satan is clueless. Guess who the real spiritual power is, is what God is saying here. So we see three things here uh, we're going to put on the overhead uh, about, about, about this woman. Number one, this woman is a widow. She's the poorest and most vulnerable member of society. Uh, she's the last person anyone would think to ask for help. Number two, she's a pagan Gentile. She's an idol worshiper. And number three, she's from the region of Sodom. She's from Jezebel's hometown. But God sees and God cares for this widow. God cares for this racial outsider who's not even a believer yet at this point of time in the Lord. He said, he's not only the God of Israel, he's saying, but I'm also the God of the nations. He says, I am the God of the outsiders. Perhaps Elijah's thinking, come on, Lord, can't you save my life here in Israel? You've got to send me to Sidon, you know, the pagan capital, in league with my enemy Jezebel? But God sends him outside the land. And the second part of this shock is that the Lord doesn't just send Elijah for his salvation to a, to a pagan man, but to a pagan woman. Now, I know this this may come as a shock to all you women here, but you need to understand that most men have a very deep-seated need to believe that they're more capable than women in general. They believe they should be able to take care of women, but that women shouldn't need to take care of them. And that's true even today. Imagine what it must have been like in this ancient, traditional, patriarchal, Middle Eastern society. This was a time when women had no rights. Uh, They were virtually... Nothing more than property. Uh, And God says to Elijah, I'm sending you to a woman. A pagan, Gentile woman. A racial outsider and a woman. She'll be the one to save you. Uh, uh, She'll be the one through whom the prophet of God will survive. And Elijah must be thinking, why, Lord? (laughs) Why why couldn't you just drop the food from heaven and save me that way? Don't you remember the manna? Why do I have to, to leave Israel, the Holy Land? Why do I have to leave your chosen people? Why do I have to go, uh, uh, have to, go to a, a woman, uh, a pagan, a racial outsider? Why do, I have to go, uh, why do I have to go to a racially different person, a religiously different person, uh, a gendered different person? 
and to boot someone who's poor and destitute. Dirt poor, bottom of the barrel. And the truth is, a lot of upper and middle class people secretly look down on the poor as somehow inferior or defective. I mean, what's wrong with these people? Why couldn't they pull themselves together like I did? So God sends Elijah for his salvation, puts on the overhead, to number one, a racial outsider, number two, a moral outsider, a pagan, number three, a gender outsider, number four, an economic outsider. The Lord shatters every single barrier that religion and society tries to put between people. And that's the point. That's why this story shocked the religious establishment in Israel, even down to Yeshua's day seven centuries later. The God of all other religions, and even the God of most people who think they're following uh, the God of the Bible, operates like this. Other gods say, obey my rules, and I'll bless you. Simple, you come to me, you obey my rules, you obey my commandments, and I'll work with you. If you don't, I'll withhold my blessing and my provision. I won't work with you. But here the Lord's going to a dirt poor, racially other, unbelieving, idol-worshipping woman. And the Lord says to Elijah, I'm going to save you through her. I'm going to also, by the way, save her through you. Go to her from a relationship. That's how I'm choosing to save you. Why would God honor her? Why would the Lord work with her? That's the reason Yeshua says, you know, there were a lot of widows in Israel during the drought. But where did God go? Who did he use? Again, he used a pagan, poor, racially different woman. And when they heard this, the crowd wanted to kill Yeshua. They didn't get it. They said, how can this be? Now, why did God do this? And put this on the overhead. And the answer is, because the Lord is the God of the outsider. Because the true God is a God of grace. The true God offers his salvation regardless of merit, regardless of pedigree, regardless of gender, regardless of class. The gods of all the other religions, even the God of the people who think they're following the biblical religion, are gods who basically work with you on the basis of your performance and your spiritual attainment. If you pray enough, if you go on this pilgrimage, if you say the rosary, if you do this, if you do that, if you're active enough in the congregation, if you read your Bible all the time, keep your nose clean, then I'll bless you. But there's only one problem with all that. That's not the true God. That's not the God of the Bible. The true God, the God of the Bible, is a God of grace. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a mess. In fact, you have to first be able to see and be willing to admit that you are a mess. Because the only way to know the God of grace is to know him as the God of grace. And if you're shocked by this, by the way, if you say, how can this be? Why would God ever work with somebody like that? Then you may say you believe in the God of the Bible. But that's not the true God. Well, you, may, you may have rejected the God you grew up hearing about all your life. But he never was the true God. You were rejecting a perversion of, the true, of God. You were not rejecting the true God of the Bible. You know, I've heard a lot of people say over the years to me, 
I was raised in church, I was raised in synagogue, but I've rejected God. The next time someone says that to you, I want you to ask them this question. Describe to me the God you've rejected. Describe the God you say you don't believe in. And nine times out of ten, you will probably be able to say back to them, well, I don't believe in that God either. (laughs) Because that's not the God of the Bible. Because usually what most people say is, I've tried so hard and I couldn't live up. Or those people who said they believed in God, they were always so excluding of others, looking down their noses at other people. You see, religion is always associated with the insider. Because this this religious God says, if you keep your nose straight and if you do what's right, if you work yourself up, then I'll bless you. The God of religion is the God of the insider. Insiders are people who've done well. They're very outwardly moral. They're respectable. Their children never misbehave. Uh, this is the God of many people who grow up exposed. This is the God that many people grow up exposed to, and now they've rejected. But Eliza is showing us this is not the true God. Not at all. If you say, all my life I could never live up, and I hated all those exclusive snobs uh, and their prejudice and their hypocrisy and all those insiders looking down on everybody else, I want you to know that's not the real God. The true God is the God of the outsider. Because the true God is the God of grace. And second, we see that the Lord is indeed the Lord of grace because he goes to the outsiders, he goes to the marginal. And he miraculously provides for them outside by his grace, through his grace. Let's look and see what happens here with this widow. Look at verse 10, verse 10, 17, 10. So Elijah went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He calls to her and says, bring me a little water and in a jar so that I may drink. As she's going to get it, he says, and by the way, also, please bring me some bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives. By the way, she says your God at this point. As the, Lord, wait, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Eliyahu said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Again, again, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour won't be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. But the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Notice how the Lord tested her faith. She first had to make a loaf of bread for Elijah, right? Before the Lord would miraculously increase her flour and her oil. Now, if I were the widow, I would have been tempted to say, I think I'd rather have your God go first. <laughs> this isn't my God, Elijah. This is your God. Tell him to first put the flour in my jar, the oil in my jug, and then I'll make you something. But God's question to the widow is this. Will you trust me now, up front, with what you've got? I don't put this on the overhead. I want you to hear this well, because the simple truth is this. 
If you won't trust God with what you've got, you won't trust him when you get more. More by itself never builds trust. Never. People say, I can't afford to trust God with my finances because I have so little and I I need every penny. But when I make more money, of course, then I'll trust God with my finances. Believe me, experience proves if you won't trust God when you have a little, you won't trust him when you have a lot. But there will always be other needs and wants and priorities and excuses in your life. But this widow trusts the Lord even with her last ounce of food. The last ounce she has for herself and her son. This is her last meal before she and her son dies. Wow. She takes a little flour and oil she has left, and she makes a meal for Elijah. How many of us would have done that? Let's be honest. How many of us would have done that? You know, I would have been tempted to make Elijah a very, very small loaf. (laughs) Maybe a cracker. (laughs) But she makes this meal for Elijah. Now she's got nothing or almost nothing left. So if the Lord doesn't come through, she and her son are gone, are dead. But, But she trusts the Lord. And he miraculously refills the jar of flour and the jug of oil. She uses it that day. The next morning she goes and looks in the jar and the jug, they're full again. And the next morning, and the next morning, one day at a time, one day at a time, God supplies her needs. God sees, God cares. I want you to notice two things about this miracle. First, the Lord did not give her this several year supply all at once. The flour and the oil continued for three and a half years until the rain fell again. But the Lord only supplied what she needed for the day, her daily bread, one day at a time. So she had to keep trusting God. And it built and built and built her faith. Second, the second point is not in the text. This is my speculation. But I believe she also had to first use up the remaining flour and oil every day to make Elijah his meal. She had to continue the pattern and the priority of serving him first. And then the miracle would continue for that day. So every day her faith was tested. Not just on day one. Every day her faith was being built. Challenged and built. I can imagine the widow saying to herself, What if I had said no? What if I had not trusted God? Who would have guessed that such reckless generosity would result in such unexpected blessings? Who would have guessed? Let me pause here and ask you, how are you doing on this reckless generosity thing? Are you being faithful with the resources God has blessed you with? Are you helping the poor like we talked about last week, over and above your tithe? How are you doing on this adventure with God? And as Yeshua himself says in Luke 6, verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Put it in the overhead, please. Luke 6, 38. The story of Elijah and the widow is a great example of what I call the kingdom law of inversion. Where the last are first, and the servants have the greatest. Here, the weakest, most vulnerable person, this impoverished, pagan widow, 
It comes to one whose generosity to Elijah keeps the prophet of God alive. God used her mightily. Why? Because this widow woman was a giver. And I believe the reason why the Lord chose to use and to bless this woman, out of all the thousands of widows in Israel and the surrounding nations, the reason why the Lord chose this woman for this miracle is because this woman was a giver. She was someone who was willing to help others. And you see that by her response to Elijah. She gave him a drink. She fed him first, even out of her poverty. And then God blessed her faith in action. She proved her faith by her works. And we see the scriptural principle at work here. Give and it shall be given unto you. This woman was a giver. This woman was willing to serve others, even when it looked like it was the last day of her life. She was willing to bless others, even when her own needs were were tremendous. So one, one of the lessons from this passage is if you are truly hurting today, the best thing you can do is to bless somebody else. To get out of your self-focus and to bless somebody else. It might not make any sense in the natural, but it's the way of the kingdom. In the measure you receive, in the measure you give, you receive. And I'm not just talking about money here, by the way. You give joy, you get joy. You give patience to others, others will be patient to you. You give kindness to others, others will be kind to you. If you're a friend to others, they'll be a friend to you. So even if you're suffering in some way today, just go and start encouraging somebody else and then blessing somebody else. And as you give whatever faith you have in that area to bless somebody else, it will be given back to you. As the scripture says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And we see all this in in this widow woman willing to step out in faith and trust the Lord and minister to Elijah. Even in her own worst crisis, this woman was a giver, willing to be a neighbor to and to help others. I believe that's why God picked her for this miracle. Let's move on in our story. Look at verse 17, 1 Kings 17, 17. Sometime later, the son of this woman became ill. He grew worse and worse, finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come and remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah says. He took him from her, uh, uh, from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cries out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Now notice how this widow asked Elijah, Is my son's death punishment for my sins? Is this the result of my sin? Now, she's still in the process of, of believing in, in, in God, in the one true God of Israel. God's been building her faith over time. Elijah, in contrast, he's the man of God. He's the, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. But notice how Elijah basically asked the very same question of God. Look at verse 20. Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? She says, is this punishment for my sins? And what does Elijah say? He basically says, Lord, is it? Is this punishment? Did you do this, Lord? Is this your judgment? Elijah doesn't know either. But note also the second similarity in their responses. 
Neither the woman nor Elijah say to the Lord, you have no right to do this. She doesn't say, I'm a good person. I took you in, Elijah. Uh, I obeyed the Lord. I found what you told me to do. God owes me. God is unjust to take my son. She doesn't say any of that. Now we might say all those things, but she doesn't. She doesn't say any of that. She says, is this punishment for my sins? She doesn't say, I'm not a sinner. She says, I know I'm a sinner. Is this my punishment? And Elijah doesn't say to God, how dare you, God? No, Elijah says, have you? Have you caused your son to die? Which means that both Elijah and the widow are saying, this is a sovereign God. This is a God who might be doing this as judgment. It's possible. Now, here's what's being taught. When the widow meets Elijah, she knows the difference between the God of Israel and all the other gods. When she meets Elijah, she says this in in verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives. So notice three three things here in that one little verse. Number one, she uses the covenant name, yud heh to call on the God of Israel. Number two, she calls him your God. She's not yet my God. He's not yet my God. Uh, Number three, she acknowledges that he lives, that he's a living God. You see the same thing in verse one. Elijah says to the king Ahab, as surely, uh, she says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. Now, what is a living God? And how is it different from all the other kinds of gods, all the idols? Here's the difference on the overhead. An idol is something you project. An idol is a God you've designed to fit your mind. Which means all it really is is an extension of your mind. An idol is a God who's under your control. An idol is a God who doesn't do things you don't understand and doesn't do things you don't like. Because you won't believe in a God like that. An idol is a God that you've designed, that you've projected. But here's what a living God is. I'll put this on the overhead as well. How do you know if you've got a living God? You know you've got a living God when he says things you don't understand. Or says things you don't like, but you still obey him. And when he says things to you you don't understand or don't like, but you still serve him. Only then do you know you've got a real God. Not a God you've made up. Uh, You see, if you have a God who fits into your mind, that never says or does anything that that confounds you or upsets you, then all you have is a God that you have spun out of your mind. Or if you're not willing to have a God who can uh, tell you things you don't like, if if you're not willing to have a God that can contradict you, If you're not willing to have an untamed God, a God you can't control, then you will never have the real God. You'll never have a living God. When you've concocted a God in your mind, that God is as dead as if you've carved him out of wood and stone. And when you carve a God, by the way, you've got to set it up very carefully, because if that God falls over, you're going to have to set it back in place. Why? Because it's not going to get up by itself. Because it's not living. The real God, the God of the Bible, the living God, is sovereign. He's not accountable to you. He's free to judge. And both Elijah and this woman know it. 
And if you say, I could never believe in a God who would do something like that and, and kill his son, for example, then what you're really saying is, I'm not willing to have a living God. I've got to have a God that I've designed and I control. So lots of people have, uh, on the one hand, a God of love, uh, who's a God of an outs- the outsiders, who brings in, in the marginal, who accepts the broken, who gives grace uh, to everybody, no questions asked. A lot of people, especially today in our society, have a God like that. And on the other side, there's also some people who, have a, who are severe. Because they have a severe God. They have a God whom you can please through good works and you better do it. So lots of people have a God who's a God of grace and mercy and love. And a lot of people have a God who's a God of truth and justice and sovereignty and judgment. But Elijah is so showing us that there is a God who is both. And a God like that does not fit into your mind. A God like that won't fit into any of your paradigms. Uh, a God like that, you know, he'll completely blow through all your categories over and over again. You'll sometimes say, I guess he's a judging God. But then you'll see all this grace. And then you'll say, well, well, I guess he accepts me just the way I am. And then he comes after you and he convicts you. And you'll say, well, how can this be? That's because he's a real God. He's a living God. He's merciful, yes. He's the God of the outsider, yes. But he's also the God of justice and truth. At the same time, because he's a living God, you cannot put him in a box. So let's ask, why did God ultimately let this little boy in the story live? Look at verse 21. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times, cries out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And Elijah picks up the child, carries him down from the room into the house, gives him back to his mother, and says, look, your son is alive. And then she says to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God. The word of the Lord spoken through you is truth. When Elijah prays for the Lord to restore the boy's life, he, in essence, asked the Lord whether this boy was slain as punishment uh, for the mother's sin. But, but God says, by this resurrection uh, that he gives to the boy, God's answer is no. When Eliza says, did this boy die for, this, for his mother's sins, the resurrection, bringing the boy back to life, is God's way of saying, no, it's not. Now, if God's not just a God of grace and mercy but also a God of justice and truth, uh, why not? Why not slay the son as punishment for the mother's sins? Why was the boy raised from the dead? Why did God resurrect him? Which was, by the way, the first ever recorded example of a resurrection in the history of the Bible. Why wasn't the woman punished for her sin, whatever it was? And the answer is this, the stretching. Why does Eliza stretch out himself over the little boy. The Hebrew implies that Elijah literally stretched out his arms, stretched out his body over the little boy. What was he doing? When you stretch your arms out, you're in a position of vulnerability. If you're in a dangerous situation and you want to die, that's a good way to do it. (laughs) But in John 21, when the resurrected Yeshua is speaking to Peter on the seashore, and he's predicting Peter's future death, Yeshua says, Peter, I want you to know what's going to happen to you. Look at John 21, verse 18. 
Yeshua says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you, and lead you where you do not want to go. And Yeshua said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And history tells us that Peter was crucified. Here's what Elijah's doing. When he stretches himself out on the boy, Elijah is instinctively saying, Lord, take me. Take me instead. I think that's what Elijah was doing. But God did not do that, did he? Why not? God did not raise the boy back. God did raise the boy back to life, but he did not take Elijah's life. Why not? The widow asks, Did my son die for my sins? And God's answer is no. Your son cannot pay for your sins. My son is going to pay for your sins. My son is going to be stretched out. My son is going to die. And by doing so, he'll impart life to the world. My son is going to to descend into the world. And like Elijah, stretch out and cry out. And this is why, God says, I can be both the God of judgment and justice, and also the God of mercy and grace. This is the reason why you don't have to pay for your sins. And why your little boy doesn't have to pay for your sins. This is why I can be both just and the justifier of those who believe. Because my son will be stretched out for the sins of the world. Because my son will die, not your son. Now when you have these three things, with this on the overhead, number one, the outside of God, a living God, and a stretched out God, you've got a very unique God. There's simply no other claimant, no other spirituality, no other faith that even claims to have these three things. Put this on the overhead, a God of grace, a God of judgment, and a God of sacrifice. A God who stretches himself out on your behalf. And because he's a God who sacrifices himself for you, he can be both the God of justice and the God of mercy, the God of grace. Now finally, what's the result of all of this? We're we're going to pick up these themes in future weeks, but let me just say as we close, if you have a God of both grace and truth, Yeshua is the Lord of both grace and truth. Not just one or the other, but both. It's because you have a God who died for you. Now, if you have have that in Yeshua, a God of both grace and truth, the way now in which you'll live out your life, the way in which you're going to serve the Lord, uh, is going to be very unique. uh, In three ways. So as we close, three ways in which now this will implicate how you now serve this this God. Number one, I'll tell you where Number one, Elijah has this unbelievably humble yet hopeful realism toward life. Elijah, when he starts praying, he doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say to God, you're doing something wrong. But he also doesn't just acquiesce passively either. So on the one hand, he doesn't say, how can you do this, Lord? How can you be this? This is unjust. This is unfair. And by the way, that's what most of us do, right? Which means we only believe in a God of grace uh, and love. But on the other hand, Elijah doesn't say, oh well, the boy's dead, nothing to be done. I guess this is your will, Lord, that he was supposed to die. Que sera, sera. 
We just have to grovel and passively accept whatever happens in the world. Who am I to question anything or dare to petition you? And that's how people who only have a God of judgment react. A God where everything is already predestined, uh, and prayer plays no role, and human beings play no role. But unless you have a real God, Elijah's God, you won't be able to handle reality. So don't put God in a box, especially one of your religious boxes, your theological boxes. If your religion or philosophy can't account for or handle all the things on heaven and earth, you won't know how to properly deal with reality. If you only have a God of grace, or only have a God of justice, or no God, of all, no God at all, you've rejected reality. And unless you have the true God, you're going to go back and forth all the time between romanticism and cynicism. Over and over again, you're going to be jerked back and forth. You're going to say, everything will be, will be fine if I just obey and just do everything right. And then when things go wrong, you're going to say, everything's terrible. Oh, we have an, I have an unjust God. If there even is a God, I curse the gods that be. You're going to go back and forth because your God, uh, the God in your head, the God you believe in, or maybe even the God you've rejected, is not the biblical God. He's not the real God, the living God. You don't, uh, you don't have this unbelievably humble yet hopeful poise that Elijah had. On the one hand, Elijah goes after God. He cries, don't do this to the boy. Don't do this to the mother. Please help me, Lord. But on the other hand, he doesn't say, this is wrong. This is unjust. You've got no right to do this. Do you see this amazing biblical balance in Elijah? How can you have this poise, this humble yet hopeful attitude toward life, this assertiveness yet humility? And the answer is he has a true God, the true God. So first, one consequence of having and serving the true God is that you can have this perfect poise, this humble poise toward life. Number two on the overhead, you'll embrace the outsider. How did this Sidonian woman from Zarephath really learn who the true God is? The answer, a weirdo from Israel came into her life. <laughs> Elijah was weird. Elijah, he wore strange clothes, kind of like John the Baptist did, right, who came with the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, Elijah was weird. He was a man. He was an Israelite. He was an outsider to her. How did Elijah find out who the true God really was? Through her. Unless you're willing, through the gospel, to embrace people who are different from you, even people that you think are weird, and unless you're willing, as we discussed last week, to serve the poor, like this poor widow, you know, hit that, uh, this kind of God's ironic upside-down kingdom here, unless you realize that God uh, may use the poor to save your soul, unless you're willing to embrace the outsider, you're going to miss out on much of what God wants to do in your life. Elisha comes into the life of this poor widow, but he's not condescending to her. He ends up getting saved physically from the drought through her, and in many ways redeemed spiritually through her. And the same thing happened to her. What does this mean? If you're religious, you're going to feel inferior or superior to other people. But the gospel says, number one, you are a wicked sinner 
So don't you dare feel superior to anybody. But at the same time, the gospel also says, number two, you are absolutely loved in Yeshua. So don't feel inferior to anyone either. And that biblical balance means you'll be able to move out into the world with a freedom in your relationships. You believe in truth, but you can also embrace. Elijah embraced the other. He got involved with the poor. He got involved with the needy. He got involved with people from another culture, another ethnicity. And that's where he encountered God. That's where he found provision. And that's where she found grace and life and rebirth. So open yourself up to the other, to those different from you. Move beyond your cliques and your comfort zones. Embrace the outsider. You need the gospel to do this, but you discover more and more of the gospel as you do this. And then number three, finally, on the overhead. It wasn't Elijah's words alone that saved this widow. She had to see the resurrection. Look at the last verse again, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you're a man of God, and that the word of the, God, of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. In essence, she's saying, Now I know the true God. Now I know the Lord. Now I know your message is true. Now I know. Elijah has been talking to her for three and a half years. He's been staying with her all this time. She's heard his words for a long time. But she needed a resurrection. She needed something else. She needed a resurrection and God gave it to her. In the same way, if you're here today and you want eternal life, it's not enough to say, I'll study the Bible. It's not enough to even say, I'll follow Yeshua. No. Yeshua didn't come to teach you how to save yourself by being good. No, Yeshua came to die and to rise again, which he did to save you. He didn't come to show you how to save yourself. He came to bring you to the end of yourself. The end of your self-salvation efforts. To save you himself. It's not enough to study his words. You must see and believe in his resurrection. And for the bulk of you here who are believers, and you say to yourself, if only I could show my friends and my family and my classmates, and my neighbors, and my co-workers, the truth of the gospel. Your words are crucial. But your words alone aren't always enough. You are, also, are you also showing them a resurrection life? Can people see Yeshua's love and joy and peace within you? I encourage you today, follow the Lamb. Follow Yeshua in every way, in overflowing jars of service and love, in action, love and action towards others, in death to self and rebirth, in humility and repentance, and in increasing faith to believe in what you do not yet see. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and pray. And is acting as came to come on. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for all these tremendous lessons, even in this one chapter, you're teaching us from the life of Elijah. Why? Because your word is living and active and powerful, more than anything, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, help us to, to learn and apply all these truths, not just to, to hear a nice story today, but to see how you are speaking to us through your word. 
Help us to discern the spirit of Jezebel in America today and how we are to stand against it and oppose it. Teach us how to be intercessors, how to daily put on the full armor of God and do effective spiritual warfare. Help us to see that you're the God of the outsider, not the God of the insider. That you're the God of the poor in spirit, not the self-satisfied, self-sufficient, the middle class in spirit. Because you care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the marginal and the powerless. In your kingdom, Yeshua, help us understand that the last are first and that the servant is, is the master of them all. Help us to be like this widow who believed your word, who put her trust in you. She was not controlled by fear, but by faith. Even in the face of of imminent starvation, she put her faith in action. She didn't focus on the natural, uh, but she had her seemingly hopeless situation. No, Lord, but she kept her eyes on you and sacrificed and served others, putting their needs uh, and Elijah's needs even above her own. Lord, you are the God of the endless flower jar and and the continuous oil jug. You are the living God. Uh, You are an untamed God who can't be put in a box. And you, Yeshua, are ultimately the stretched out God who died for us and was raised again to resurrection life. Help us to live in that same resurrection life, Lord, because we know the spirit that raised Yeshua from the dead is the very same spirit that lives in us. Hallelujah. Help us to live in the fullness of your spirit, Lord. For we pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.